Thank you so much, choir. And that verse is so perfect for what we're talking about today. Jesus said, come unto me, all of you who labor, and I will give you rest. I will, you'll find rest for your weary soul. And, and so that's a message in song that's so scriptural. And I appreciate it as we look at part two. Take your bulletins, take your Bibles. As we look at the outline, the race, what's it all for? This is part two entitled, Pace Yourself. You know, I, I noticed a couple of the kids that uh, normally go to children's church. Now they're getting a little older, so they get to sit in big church. The outline is the answer to your prayers, moms and dad, so they can follow along and fill in the blanks with you. So I hope you'll look at that as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. My sources include Dr. Richard Swenson's book called Margin, Chuck Swindoll's book on Ecclesiastes entitled Living on the Ragged Edge, and a commentary by J. Philip Arthur, Strength and Weakness, uh, on 2 Corinthians from the Wellwind Commentary series. We're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 7. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Holy Word. Hear the Word of God. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death, For Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus And present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit. So that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, your word. And we thank you for your presence here. Teach us, Lord. Teach us about ourselves and about your greatness. In Christ's name I pray it. Amen. Please be seated. Pastor and author John Ortberg, one of my heroes, is currently the senior pastor at Menlo Church in Menlo Park, California. It's a Presbyterian church. Years ago, he was the teaching pastor at Willow Creek in Chicago. And in thinking about that time in his life, he writes this. He says, not long after moving to Chicago, I called a wise friend to ask 
for some spiritual direction. I describe the pace of life in my current ministry. The church where I serve tends to move at a fast clip. I also told him about our rhythms of family life. We are in the van driving, soccer league, piano lesson, school orientation night years. I told him about the present condition of my heart as best I could discern it. What did I need to do? I asked him to be spiritually healthy. Long pause. My friend said at last, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Another long pause. I told him a little impatiently, okay, I I got that one. I've written that one down. That's a good one. Now, what else is there? I mean, I had many things to do, so I was anxious to cram as many units of spiritual wisdom into the least amount of time possible. Another long pause. Finally, he said, there's nothing else. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Ortberg adds, I concluded that my life and the well-being of the people I serve depends on following his prescription for hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Hurry destroys souls. This is a very stressful world that we live in. Things go wrong more often than not, it seems. And when you consider that all five of the major building blocks upon which any society is built, they're crushing, they're crumbling, the family, government, education, religion, and the media. It's no wonder in this crumbling world we live in that we have stress. And when you add in your own personal stress, it could be that you become overloaded to the point of distress. How do we deal with it? Well, one thing's for sure, you'll never get rid of stress. Dr. Richard Swenson, a physician, in his book Margin, says that something has really gone wrong in our world. And here's what he writes. I sit in my examining room and I listen. And then I report what I hear. Something is wrong. People are tired and frazzled. People are anxious and depressed. People don't have the time to heal anymore. There is a psychic instability in our day that prevents peace from implanting itself firmly, very firmly, in the human spirit. And his point is, when we have no margin in our lives, when when life seems out of control, when we're living on overload, then problems, stresses, take on a different dimension. Stress becomes distress. This is where our text, I think, can be very, very helpful. The Apostle Paul, in running his race, called the Christian life, He had some very serious stresses in his life. And so look back at our text at 2 Corinthians 4 and then take your finger and turn over uh, a few chapters to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians and right at verse 23, somewhere in the middle of verse 23. Listen to what he says. This is the Apostle Paul talking about his life. He says, I've worked much harder been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, which was to be whipped, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. It was tradition to receive 39 lashes when you were punished. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled, and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold, and I have been naked. I mean, that's not the greatest resume to share with you, but that was the Apostle Paul's ministry in life. And then in our text, back in 2 Corinthians 4, he says this in verses 8 and 9. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. So there are four statements that he makes here. First, hard-pressed, but not crushed. Another translation says, troubled on every side, but not distressed. And this meant that, that Paul was under incredible pressure, which speaks of being crowded into a narrow space, kind of hemmed in, but he wasn't crushed. And some of you can relate to that. Secondly, perplexed but not in despair. To be perplexed is simply to not know what to do. This means that Paul was probably at the end of his rope, at the end of his resources. Do you know what that feels like? Paul did, but he was not in despair, which means he still had hope. And that's really because of the gospel, because of his Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, persecuted but not abandoned. I mean, to be persecuted means you, you're being chased down. By standing up for what you believe in, you're guaranteeing yourself some form of persecution. And Paul experienced persecution to the nth degree. But he never felt forsaken by God. And a lot of us, we, we just don't know what that's like. Our, our friend and brother and pastor, Andrew Brunson, knows what that's like. And just a brief update, I'll tell you that... He's on house arrest now. He was released from prison a few weeks ago. He's at home at the apartment that he and Noreen share. So he's able to live with his wife, Noreen, at home. But he can't leave the house. He can't go anywhere. And, and now, if you're not listening to the news, you don't understand this. But with the tensions between the United States and Turkey, Noreen is afraid to leave the house. He is a marked man, and she is a marked woman. And so imagine, she'd just like to go to the grocery store to get some groceries. It's, it's not an easy decision to make because his life is on the line. And someone could try to take him out or take his wife out. And, and so please don't slow down in your prayers for Andrew Brunson and Noreen. Pray for the Lord to watch over this EPC pastor, missionary in Turkey for 25 years, who is being severely persecuted because he's a Christian. And then the fourth thing that Paul says is struck down but not destroyed. To be struck down is to be defeated. It's, it's to be wounded, as in the contest of the gladiators. So Paul suffered some blows. And he, he outlined those in 2 Corinthians 11. He suffered his share of wounds, but he was not destroyed by them. So where are you going to go to avoid stressful situations the answer to that is since stress is a given you must find within you an oasis by virtue of your relationship to God through Jesus Christ an oasis 
that will keep you, you and your stress from becoming distress. Look with me in the New Testament to John chapter 16 for a moment. The Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 16. The last verse of chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus has been telling his disciples, preparing them for what is to, to come when he is crucified. He's trying to get it through their heads. I'm not going to be around. I'm going to leave you. And you're going to need the Holy Spirit with you. And the Holy Spirit will come. And, and so it's not going to be an easy thing. But I will be with you. And I will not only be with you, I will be inside of you. And that's why he says this in verse 33. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. So he's saying you're going to be stressed. There's going to be stress. But he says in me, in me there is peace. So stress is a given since we live in this world and not even my relationship to Christ can take away my stress. It's a fact. On the other hand, distress is your response to your circumstances. So the question is, how do you learn to pace yourself in this stressful world? I have four lessons that we'll look at this morning. And number one is this. Focus on the eternal, not the temporary. Focus on the eternal, not the temporary. This was Paul's secret to dealing with the stresses in his own life. He called them light and momentary troubles. Look at verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory. An eternal glory that far outweighs all these light and momentary troubles. Now, I read to you about his light and momentary troubles. They weren't light and momentary. They were severe. But his perspective was everything. You see, Paul's mind had the right attitude and he had the right perspective. And you simply have to do that. You simply have to have that to deal with the stresses that we encounter in this world. Turn with me back to the Old Testament, to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'll read a few verses from Ecclesiastes 1. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2. This is a pretty depressing book. A lot of people have talked about the fact it's not quoted in the New Testament. So as a result... In the words of maybe uh, a preacher over in Atlanta, we, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. No, we don't. There's a lot we can learn from Ecclesiastes. Verse 2 says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utter, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And skipping to verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And then skipping to verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. This is Solomon writing this. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, chasing after the wind. So, 
Two perspectives to remember as we read this passage in Ecclesiastes 1. Number one, if there is nothing new under the sun, then our hope must be above it. If there is nothing new under the sun, our hope must be above it. And then secondly, if a man who had everything, and and Solomon, he had everything. If a man who had everything visible still found life meaningless, then the one thing needed must be invisible. Which brings us back to our text. Look at again in our text in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18. So, we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Focus on the eternal, not the temporary. You won't be able to survive this world and the stresses of this world until you're able to do that. Number two, establish God, and this is going to be one that you're going to question me about, I'm sure. Establish God as your sole focus. Establish God as your sole focus. Now, if, you, if you're challenging me on this sole focus, you're going to say, come on, Rhett. You know, we live in this world. We can't get away from the fact that, you know, we live in this world. So Jesus can't be my sole focus. Well, that's because you're defining soul as only. And there's a lot of different definitions for soul. Only is just one of them. So I would say another one might be Singular, central. Make Christ your central focus. And that makes a lot more sense. And then look at the text and look at verse 13. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the same spirit of faith that the psalmist had. That's a quote from Psalm 116, verse 10. Psalm, the psalmist actually was praying a prayer of thanksgiving in Psalm 116, thanking God for delivering him from death. And so the psalmist says, I believe, therefore I have spoken. And Paul is saying that, I believe, therefore I have spoken. And I do, I do continue to believe. I will continue to speak. I will continue to, to walk by the same faith. The same spirit of faith that the psalmist had when God delivered him from death. I believed, therefore I have spoken. And since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. And so he's saying... I walk by faith every single day because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of the resurrected Christ, I'm going to have the same spirit of faith and even greater faith than the psalmist had. Because I've seen the resurrected Christ. Now, in terms of this whole thing of focus, one of the most misunderstood principles in Christianity is that many people try to establish their priorities like this. Okay, I'm going to put God first. And then I'm going to put my spouse second. Then I'm going to put my children third. Then I'm going to put my work fourth. And then I'm going to put my church and my friends down the, down the list. Now, if you really think about that in terms of a list of priorities, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to do it that way. And that's, that's the traditional way of prioritizing your life. God first, 
you know, then my, my spouse, my children, and, and so forth. It may only serve to add to your stress if you do it that way. It's better to make God your singular concern, Christ your singular focus. That is to think of God as central to everything and then build outward from that point. Now, Matthew chapter 6 is where the Sermon on the Mount is found. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And in that chapter 6, Jesus is talking to people about the stresses of their daily life. You know, food and clothes and, and shelter, all those things that people need, that we need every day. And he's, he's talking in Matthew 6 about how we worry about those things, how we concern ourselves with those things. And then he finally says in chapter 6, verse 33, seek first... His kingdom, Christ's kingdom, and His righteousness. And then all these other things, all these other stresses in your life will be added to you as well. Make Christ central is what Jesus is saying. And live your life like that rather than trying to, to identify the next thing you're going to prioritize. For example, we do not devote ourselves to God, then to our spouse, then to our children, then to our work and church and so on. If we did that... It would mean, practically speaking, that we would love God 100%, our spouse 90%, our children 80%, our work 70%, and so on. But if you make Christ central to your life, then work outward from those other priorities in your life as God directs, then you please God and you relieve your own stress level. Okay, so lesson one, focus on the eternal, not the temporary. Secondly, establish God as your singular soul focus. And then then number three, lesson three is take control of your daily schedule. And and this is is one of those I didn't even add a word in there. Okay, It's, it's written out for you. So let's talk about taking control of your daily schedule. We are clay pots. Did you know that? We are very fragile people. That's why we're called, in this text, jars of clay. Jars of clay was the first century version of disposable plastic bags or plastic containers. These pots were very fragile, these clay pots, and once broken, they could not be fixed, so they just threw them away. Fortunately, they were cheap and could be replaced without much expense. And guess what? Paul is describing himself as one of those clay pots. He's a clay pot, a jar of clay. But he says in verse 7, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In other words, the strength that we have in Jesus Christ is our hope. We don't have any strength in ourselves because we're just clay pots who will shatter at the least little thing. We totally lean On the strength of our Lord Jesus Christ. So take control of your daily schedule. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you a few statistics about you and me. About the average American adult and what we do with our time. This is from MSN. So again, if you want to get upset, get upset with MSN. Um, We spend in our lifetime, the average American adult spends... And I don't like this first one, but this is what it says. We spend 10.3 years working. That's not a lot, is it? 10.3 years working. 
That's the average adult. The average American spends 11 years of their life watching television. Wow, that's a lot. Four months shaving, which is probably why a lot of our young guys don't shave much anymore. They, they got the beard thing going. That'll cut that down a lot. We spend 4.4 years eating. We spend five years surfing the Internet. That's the average adult. 8.5 years shopping. One year, one whole year of our life deciding what to wear. One and a half hours a day doing housework. One hour a day eating. Women spend 17 years of their lives dieting. 38 hours a year in traffic, more like 60 in the metro areas. Now, this is a sad one here. We spend 115 days laughing. Right now, in this generation we live in, we spend about six minutes a day laughing. I, I loved it coming into the sanctuary today and you were all laughing. You were talking to people and laughing and having a great time. In the 1950s, they spent 18 minutes a day laughing. We need to start laughing more. Five months complaining. Three years washing clothes, which is very depressing, I'm sure, for my wife. 26 years sleeping. 26 years! You don't need a nap. Come on! You spend 26 years of your life sleeping. You do need a nap from time to time. Seven years lying awake trying to go to sleep. Now, I can really relate to that one. Seven years trying to go to sleep. That's crazy. Now, here's where it gets really scary. One study says a child born in 2013. Listen to this, parents. A child born in 2013 will have spent right now an entire year of his or her life in front of a screen by the time the child turns seven. One in three teenagers send more than 100 text messages per day. One in three. The average U.S. gamer. Now, some of you adults are going, what, what's a gamer? The average U.S. gamer over the age of eight, uh, 13 spends 6.3 hours per week playing video games. A person checks his or her phone. Every 6.5 minutes, which is 150 times in 16 waking hours. And then finally, a typical American spends around 11 hours a day with one or the other form of digital media, including computer, mobile, and TV. 11 hours a day, the typical American. And here's where I'm going with this. If you could calculate in hours and minutes the amount of time that you spend taking care of your spiritual life, what would it come to? You say, I, I don't know. Well, let's just take a minute and think about it. How much time do you spend each week getting closer to God and nurturing your spiritual life? You can count one hour for worship. You can count one hour for Sunday school. If you attend Sunday school, count one hour for the gathering on Wednesday. Count one hour for a small group that you belong to. Count one hour for another Bible study that you're a part of. But apart from these gatherings, 
which are offered to you by your church, how much time do you spend each week getting closer to God? Take a moment and think about it right now. How much time do you take nurturing your spiritual life? Someone once said the distance between intention and reality is often littered with frustration and failure. What does that mean? It means it's one thing to talk about regaining control of your life, quite another thing to actually do it. Take control of your daily schedule. And then the fourth lesson is, and this is, this is why we're here today. Establish the rhythm of the Sabbath. Establish the rhythm of the Sabbath. And look again at, at verse 16 in the text. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Are you? If you don't have a Sabbath every week, then you're probably not inwardly being renewed. Basically, the rhythm of the Sabbath means one day in seven is to be set aside for three purposes. A day of rest, a day of reflection, a day of worship. Rest, reflection, worship. God knew that you and I would be pushed and pulled in a thousand different directions. Asked to make decisions about this or that. Asked to invest our resources, invest our time. So the question is, by what standard of truth do we make these tough decisions? It's one of the reasons why God instituted the Sabbath. So you and I would take one day each week and firmly deal with this question. And so hear it now. A Sabbath-less person is an anxious person. We are vulnerable at all times to distortions of the truth, which is why we must regularly be exposed to the Word of God and to acknowledge that God is the Lord of our lives. Is He? Brings us to our verse of the week, which is Jeremiah 17, verse 9. 17, 9 of Jeremiah. It's in your outline down at the bottom. Let's read it out loud together. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? Well, the answer is the Lord can. Because you need to listen to the next verse. I know you're packing up, but listen to the next verse. The next verse is Jeremiah 17, verse 10. And listen to what it says. The very next verse after what we just read. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. And as he searches your heart and examines your mind, he's pressing it upon you that you need the gospel every day. You need the gospel not just to be saved, but to help you run the race, to help you pace yourself, to help you cut yourself some slack. To remind you that you don't hold the human race in your hand. God does. It could be it's time to let some things go in your life. It could be it's time to add some things into your life. Some good things in your life. I hope that you will consider all of that before God as we pray. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your great love for us. In the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, forgive us for how we live our lives 
oftentimes ignoring you, ignoring our spiritual life, ignoring the eternal, ignoring our inward life, and expecting that we will do just fine without your help. I pray that you would enable many in this place to repent, Lord, of self-sufficiency. To repent of putting everything but you first. Lord God, we we have tried to make a, a mess of our lives, and we've done it pretty well. So teach us today, Lord, to make you the singular focus of our lives, and then let everything go from there. Let everything flow from there. Help us, Lord Jesus. And Father, for those in this place that do not know you, they don't have a relationship with you, I pray that you will impress upon the people who are lost that their life is never going to get any better until they turn it over to you. So I pray that you will enable those in this place to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and to start living a different way. Teach them what that means, Lord, through your word. And may this word go with us all through this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.